a Podcast One production. Hello, my name is Gary Megan and this is A Plate to Call Home, where we explore the unknown stories behind the food that we all love. Now, you might recognise it as the host of Channel 10's The Project or The Circle, but what you may not know is that Georgie Coglin is a massive foodie. Her Instagram page is a testament to that. She runs the Provincial Hotel and Lola Restaurant in Ballarat with her partner, and she also works half the week on her farm. Talk about living a double life. She's an incredibly passionate and authentic person, as you'll hear, and she's got some inspiring advice on how to live with purpose, finding your why and why money should never be the reason to do anything, something that I can relate to. Here she is, Georgie Coglin. Georgie, do you know when we first met? Well, I remember meeting you, Gary, on The Circle. So you came on with... George and Matt, and we did a beef bourguignon cook-off. And Chrissy, Yumi, Denise and I had to cook a beef bourguignon. I did not win. Uh, my husband had tampered with my bourguignon and I didn't realise. And he'd put some extra red wine or something in and you picked it up straight away in your palate. You said, hang on, what's going on here? I was just mildly shamed on national TV. But I, that's where so I we blame, remember. we blame Simon for your... We blame your dis- Simon. ...the disgrace on national television. Totally. You've got a good memory. I don't remember that at all. I must have control-alt-deleted that Bourguignon episode. It just goes to show. <laughs> did you have anything to say to Simon about that tampering? Of course I did. I went home and I said, Gary Megan just <laughs> absolutely destroyed Dished, me on national TV because you, what did you put in? You touched it. And of course he'd gone in and touched it after I'd put it on the slow cooker. Terrible. Does he do that? Is that a thing he, that does he does do that. Um, because I have a science background, I'm a bit funny like that. I, when I bake, I have to follow yep. a specific recipe. And even when I'm following sort of I don't know, a recipe that I really love and I'll follow it down to the wire. Some days I just spontaneously put anything in. Mm. But if I want to follow a recipe, Gaz, I follow it. He comes in and he'll just throw and tamper something in. I'll say, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just throwing a little bit of this in. I'm like, no, 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 that doesn't work. Yeah. That's not. So we have a little bit of a rule that if you're going to do that dish and you cook, you do it. And if I'm cooking, this is my dish, don't touch it. You can sense there's been some arguments in the mm-hmm. kitchen. I've looked, I actually am a big fan of your Instagram and I got Mandy onto your Instagram because your interests are very diverse. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I'm there because I like the cooking and you cook some great dishes, especially your winter dishes because you're based in Ballarat, right? So when the cold kicks in, Oof. we get stews and roast chicken and it looks very country perfect to me, is it? It is. It's it is my happy place, my sanctuary. We've got a big kitchen garden that we grow and that's sort of developing more as well at the moment, which I love. I love nothing better than walking out, grabbing your own produce, Gary, and then coming in and thinking, okay, I have an abundance of this. What can I cook? And that's when I tend to go to the old school sort of Maggie Beers, Stephanie mm. Alexander's and think like the old days, you know, when they had yeah. the abundance in the orchard or the abundance in the in the garden and they had to then use it. So I love living like that because I feel like you're not wasting anything and you're being productive and you've got to be creative. And you, I'm into preserving as well. Yeah. And I've seen, are you a member of the local country women's association? <laughs> not, not yet. Not yet. I'm hoping. It's nearly this, time. Oh, really? I don't know whether I, I'm good at a sponge. It's, I'm very good at I a sponge. I saw, I actually showed Dave, our producer, your sponge. Oh, well, I'm. Double layer, lots of cream. Double layer. Like really seriously impressive. Very impressive. The thing I find about the sponge, Gary, because I'm, I'm. Where is it actually? Where, where's the sponge gift? I should have bought one, shouldn't yeah. I? Oh, it was well, a bit enough rough. for everyone. Please. Next, next time. Next time. Well, I, I get a bit, I am a perfectionist in life. So I tend to find that I keep trialing sponge recipes the whole time. So I'm still trialing the percentage of custard powder to corn flour to number of eggs. But I found out that the eight eggs is the best, but you have to have the custard powder. So Stephanie Alexander has the best recipe, but I find hers aren't very high. And why the custard powder? Colour? Flavour? Flavour and the softness. There's something about... Because essentially it's corn flour with flavour and colour in it. Yeah. There's actually, if you put it in beer batter as well, just oh. a little bit, it just makes your crispy fish, Ooh. you know, extra delicious. But you've got to be careful because it's got added sugar or some custard powders have added sugar. So right. then it gets too sweet, too caramelised and not good enough. It's it's really interesting because m- most chefs, most chefs don't talk about food like that. So you just said, oh, I'm obsessed at the moment. I've tried eight recipes. Most chefs don't do that. They kind of make a recipe. If it doesn't work, maybe they... I, Actually, I'm talking about myself when I say most chefs. I just realised I go, oh, that doesn't work, and then I leave it alone for a few years. Right. I'm, yeah, I'm shocking. Or I find a really good recipe, and then it, it becomes mine. So do you do that with 
lots of dishes. Like yes, I, but I wish I was more like you because it's annoying. It, you know, oh, I like it. I, I wish I could let it go, but I can't. So I think to myself, oh, and I'll even write little notes next to the recipe and I'll say, uh, this was great, but I would use light soy rather than soy. So when I go back to do the recipe, I've made a little note to go, that's right, or use more sesame oil or use less sesame oil. But I do like to get to the point where, because hubby and I will both put it in our mouths and we do what you probably do all the time, Gary, is, yeah, it's okay, just the texture's not right or mm, I just feel like the balance of, and sometimes it's, it's great and it's exciting because you get to love food, but sometimes I do wish I could be a bit more, you know, not really notice the – if I could be to the point where I wouldn't notice those little things, maybe I could be – surrender more to the experience, but I just love all those details. See, that's interesting because, I, for example, I don't know how you think about, say, your mum's cooking or your family's cooking, granny's cooking, whatever, but my mum would make things of variable, various consistencies and tastes, you know. So she used to make a cheesecake. And it was always, it'd be different every single time. But as kids, we loved it. And strangely, I still love them, even though they're completely imperfect. Right. She'll go, oh, it didn't set this time. And we all go, oh, well. Yeah, I'm probably you know? like that with other people. People that I know and love and within my family and friends, I'm probably like that. I can just go, no, it's great. Hmm. And it's been cooked by someone else or baked by someone else. But I think it's just, it's, it's my perfectionism on myself. I want to chase that perfectionism down, but I just want to stick with the food for a bit longer because <laughs> so it's going to come back. I'm going to see what other okay. where else this uh, affects okay. your life. Um, so, why Ballarat? Just a so Simon is a Ballarat born mm-hmm. and bred family, and yep. I was I grew up in Warrnambool, so not very far away. And when I met my my soulmate and my country boy, I was at a point in my life where I thought there were several factors that. Maybe I, was, I think I was unfulfilled on a personal level. TV, I was working for Channel 9. I was a bit disillusioned. I'd been through a really rough patch in my personal life and then I met this incredible man. And so my value system just changed. And rather than be in the city and chase this media career and chase things that I had formerly <coughs> valued, I had a complete 180 reassessment, reevaluation of who I was. And part of that was realising that when you do meet someone and all of those other wonderful life values align, yeah, look, leave the city. It doesn't matter. Because everyone was saying to me, why are you going to live in Ballarat? You've got a media, national media career. I gave my notice at Channel 9 and everyone thought I was mad. They were like, I don't understand why you're throwing all this away. But I just intuitively knew right deep down in my soul, spirit, gut, whatever people want to call it, that that was the right thing to do. So I found myself sitting in Ballarat and I had days, of course, where I thought, what have I done? Mm. But something told me, no, this is this is the right place. And Simon was a, a very smart man and realised that to keep me there, he said, listen, I can see you're a bit unsettled in a sort of a, a city because even though it was Ballarat, I'm not used to living. If I'm going to live in sort of residential areas, I'm used to living in a big CBD. He said, why don't you go out and have a look at a few farms and see what we like? And you get to choose the farm, smart man. And so I trotted off and found our beautiful little piece of paradise. And he was more than happy to go on the land with me. He'd never been on the land, but he was more than happy to do all of that. And now you probably couldn't get him off the land more so than me, Gary. He loves it. That's brilliant. So it's, I suppose in a, in a sense, I mean, Warrnambool is not exactly a big city either. So no. if you grew up there, that's a particular type of lifestyle. Is, mm. it, is it similar in a way now to Ballarat and the way you see Ballarat or the people that are in it? There's still part of me that feels like an imposter in Ballarat. And I think you'd always be, if you didn't grow, if you weren't born there, maybe you always feel that way, no? I think so. And I think with country families, there's always some connection to it. Now, who are your parents and what, were, what what's your, you know, what was your maiden name? And there's always some connection. So, but I actually like being an imposter there. I like, I'm away from everyone because we're out in the farm. We're 20 minutes outside of Ballarat. And I think because of my job and my profile, I love... And I'm still way under the radar compared to someone like you and Carrie, who I work with, and Lisa and Waleed. I love being under the radar. So it's perfect for me. I can dip in and out of Ballarat and go in and go into the hotel and people see me, of course, and they say hi, but a lot of people would never notice me. But I just love shutting that gate on the farm and no one can find me. No one can see me. It's just my family, my garden, my horses and my food. That's just heaven for me. And then how do you connect it to your city job? Yeah, I don't see them as separate entities. I just see it as when I leave that farm, I only leave it for 
a really, really good reason. So I only read, I only leave the farm and leave my family in that beautiful life for something that nourishes me on a creative level to go and work with people that I believe are good humans, creative and energy that I want to be around or giving back to other people. So I've got a fairly strict criteria and it has to be, you know, I'm not really worried about, of course, we all need money and we're all paying off mortgages, but I'm not even leaving the farm just for the money. It has to, the money comes maybe four or five down the rung. Am I, will I feel valued by doing this job? But that's after, is it creative? Is it fun? Do I want to leave my family for this? Are the people I'm going to be with today going to nourish me on an energetic level? Yes, they will. Great. I'm happy to leave the farm. And see, for me, that has been project and working with Network 10 because that ticks all those boxes. Mm. And if it is a charity lunch or coming up here to see you, doing I was, I was just thinking quietly, well, I did, I've done okay. <laughs> but she will leave. She'll drive back and go, well, that wasn't worth it, was it? <laughs> and, you know, the joy I feel when I left this morning, and I'm not being, I'm not just saying this, is because I know you, we have a great relationship, you're a good human being, it's going to be fun, it's going to be easy. I get my little city fix. That, they're the, that's the criteria for now for me leaving the farm. So I, I see it as it, it really meshes well. It's a lovely balance. It's a really lovely balance and I couldn't be who I have to be on the desk at the project, which is I've got to manage people in that role. I've got to be really calm, happy. I want to be centred. Yeah. I can't Serious, do that. informative. Yeah, I, I can't do that if I'm not centred and grounded and that's what the farm gives me. Yeah. I actually notice on, and I hate to keep saying Instagram, but I, I notice when you take shots when you're, on the project and you take shots in the makeup chair and all I go, why do you do that? Because obviously you don't, you don't mind, right? But you actually look genuinely happy. You're pleased to be there and it's, you know, you're doing something you love. I love it. And that's the greatest compliment I get is people say to me, it just looks like you love your yeah. job. And I really do. I can't be, I am an empath. I can't be fake, Gary. I can't do, the thing that drains me the most is inauthenticity and fake conversations. I just, I'm really bad poker face. And so... When I don't like something, I just can't hide it. So it's it's wonderful. I feel it in every cell of my body when I walk into that place, that team, the people I work with, the responsibility of that job, which is delivering news in a way that I want with compassion, with humour. It's it's fabulous. It's been 10 years, and but it's been 10 years of this really lovely, fun relationship where I'm not there all the time. Yep, go a bit intense. Carrie has a baby. I'm there. Um, and that's what I like too. I'm not someone that can, I don't know whether you find this with MasterChef, but I love the intensity of a period and then I love that you've got holidays planned or nothing planned. If I had a whole year of just insaneness, I think I'd probably get a bit too anxious because I'd get anxiety from that. I always, from my perspective, I always think I'm the busiest lazy person I know. <laughs> like I'm just busy all the time, but I don't want to be busy. I just want to do nothing. And then my wife will remind me, Mandy will say, yeah, but if when you're doing nothing, you're really annoying. <laughs> so it kind of puts balance in my life too. But I don't have, I don't have a, an escapism like that. But you have a very busy life now. I mean, the fact that, so Simon is a serial hospitalitarian, right? Mm -hmm. So he's been in the hospitality business, had pubs, yep. and now the provincial, which is, how long is that now? So this is a big project that you've taken on. It is a big baby. And we you're laugh. properly in it. We are fully in it. Like when people <clears> say, oh yeah, do you just own it on the side and yeah. have people run it? Um, no, like I'll be ringing yeah. a staff member later today about some issues they're dealing with and looking at some time off to make sure he or she's mental health is okay. Like we're right in the trenches. Yeah. And all the styling, the designing, um, collaborations. I mean, you've been there and supported us, Gary. You know, gorgeous, yeah. you know how intense it is, even yeah. just managing people in hospitality. It's a hard game. Well, rather than all that, I can actually, I never realised, I suppose, if we rewind the clock a few years, like, oh, yeah, I knew Simon was in hospitality and, you know, running uh, restaurants and, and pubs, but I thought the same. I thought, well, you do your job, he must do his, and there's probably a little bit of a gap in the middle where you exchange information, but you don't get stuck into it. And then I finally realised, particularly with the provincial that you were you're in both feet and that everything in that place has got your touch on it right well that's that's so lovely to hear because it we poured our heart into it oh yeah and, and you can <laughs> see it <laughs> you know we were doing oh it's just a crazy time wonderfully crazy time it wasn't the crazy that drains you it was the crazy that energizes you we both decided not to drink when we set it up because we're like we can't even drink because we can't even afford an hour in the morning to be feeling sorry for ourselves and being hung over so we were like ships in the night both there but i was doing all the design the rooms styling ordering wallpaper from america had amazing team with us though, helping of course, um, um, but I had a very clear vision and Siam had a very clear vision, but we're really good at, 
we butt heads every now and then only because we're both firstborn, both strong, both mm. alpha. But we are pretty good overall at working as a team and saying, okay, well, that's your domain too. I'll let you deal with the chef because I don't try and stamp on his area. And he has learnt slowly, Gast, to, <laughs> to, let, to me, let you do what well, you do. not freak out at like <coughs> the cost of upholstery and not freak out at – and I always give him the worst-case scenario and I'll say – Okay. Uh, you set him up. You, the that's Four what Seasons have spent this and he'll laugh and go, George, we're not the Four Seasons. Yeah. So, he, but he trusts me now. I think after we excitedly just won an award a few weeks ago. Tell us about that because um, I was going to ask you about that because that's, um, that's, a, that's a big deal. So great just to be nominated, Gary, against incredible venues and we're only seven months in. So it was such a validation for our hard work. Mm. We got Best um, Boutique Style Hotel in Victoria and it was that moment when they called our name out that Simon and I particularly looked at each other mm. because you put yourself out there and this is pretty highbrow for Ballarat and pretty risky and it was a market that can be fickle and you've so many people saying to you, oh, I don't know whether there's a market for that and you just go against all of those opinions and you stand, you feel like you're standing out on this diving board ledge and everyone else is sort of behind you waiting for you to fall. Yeah. So it was just for the team, it was just wonderful mm. to get that. Did you have a tear in your eye? Oh, yes. And tear and I for the t- came back and to see the glow and the energy and the lift of the team because it's for them. They're the ones that have cr- helped us. We can have all these ideas, but we need... We need the the human interface mm. in the front line. You, do, you you diverted nicely to the team there, but which I get because it's all about the team, right? But how did, at that moment exactly how did you feel? Like what did it? You know, when you looked at Simon, like what what was there? It was relief, but it was this beautiful joy. You know that mo- you know those those times in your life, Gary, where you think, "Oh my God, this is such a moment." I'm sitting in this, and that it doesn't last very long. It's gone sort of the next day, but you're sitting in this bubble of joy. All I can describe it is it's something that bubbles up from internally within your heart and it just feels magnificent Mm. and addictive and it was really special. I looked at him and all of the decisions and the tears had all made sense at that point. Mm. And this wonderful man that's come on this ride together, I looked at him with such gratitude thinking how lucky I am. I'm just so lucky to have someone who understands dreams because when you don't have someone that gets that, gosh, the life can still be good but life can be so rich when you're with someone who who gets it, who is happy to support you. You know, you, you, you go against all the grains of what people expect you to do. Even as a working mum, Gary, like people are like, aren't you busy enough with the project? Why are you doing this? And you take a bit of the judgment and the, the shame and that's hard at the time, but then when you push through the other side, my God, it's worth it. Mm. And you can you look at each other and go, we did this. That's and yours. It's for forever. That's an achievement think, outside probably yes. the outside of what you ever thought you might do. Uh, absolutely. A whole new level. And I think the feeling and the emotion that I got when I when we locked eyes that night was a feeling of complete unity. Of going, This is why I met this person in my life. How bloody lucky am I that because, you know, a lot of people don't get to do this, Gary. Mm. They don't get to chase the dreams. They can have them, but there are a lot of people that get to their 70s and 80s and think that would have been wonderful, but I just never got the chance to do it. Do you think, I mean, the way I look at it, when I when I saw that, I thought, isn't that wonderful? You know, you've got a regional property, it gets recognition from doing doing great things, and you've got trailblazers like Ella Wolf Tasker in the Lake House that started exactly the same way as you did. And so. she, we talk about Ella all the time. Yeah. Because she started with a paddock in Dalesford. Yeah. And whenever we've had moments, Gary, of doubt, where understandably, because Simon's a very good businessman, um, he's a very smart, sensible businessman, and I'm I'm the dreamer and he's the anchor, and that's why we work well together. Mm. And he would say, I just don't know, and I would use her. We'd get, I've got her book, and there's the picture of the paddock, and I'd say to him, remember the paddock, remember Ella. Everybody said to her, no one will come to Dalesford for producers and look at what she's created. So we use her as an example and all those people that put themselves out there to have this dream and particularly them because I feel like they've, you know, Ella and Alan have just, and Larissa, their daughter, I just feel like they're such an incredible team and they've never compromised with their quality. They've never, never swayed from the belief that we can do this. So they are, they're like a bit of a lighthouse for us because they're so close to us geographically, but they're a lighthouse in so many other ways because it's so easy, Gary, to buy into the criticism and it's so easy to buy into the fears. Oh, yeah. 
But if you can push through and say, like, you know, like anything, I suppose, isn't it? Whenever you've got really serious stuff happening in your life too as well. It's so easy to fall back into the fear and it's so hard to step forward and think, no, we can do this. So Because genuinely it's hard and it takes certain people to be able to do it, doesn't it? So those people yeah. are saying, oh, you should you do this? Can you do this? They're different kind of people. They're different and I'm a big fan of Brene Brown, a big fan of vulnerability. I think vulnerability is strength and I'm so glad that there's this global consciousness slowly happening that, w- that we've got the research now to show that. And you know what? If you're not in the arena, like this is what Brene Brown says and I love it. If you're not in the arena fighting and you're not in the arena getting dirty and about to fall down, if you're sitting in the seats in the arena, I'm not interested in what, you, I'm not interested in what you've got to say mm. because get in the arena. And so we tend to just surround ourselves with people in the arena. She, she must be a boxing fan because in the boxing <laughs> world, there are people well, that you get You love in, your boxing, I love you? boxing, but they, I follow, obviously, you know, bits and pieces and the hate and the nastiness mm. and the opinions and the experts from these crowd, what do they call them when you're keyboard warriors? Yeah. And you go, get in the ring and see whether or not you're prepared to put your life on the line. But that's what business is like. Mm-hmm. You know, and actually I, the, the idea of people telling you to take it easy, you've got a great life, you know, why don't you just live on the farm and go and do TV and Simon can do his thing. That's there. That's what they think, not what you think. And that's great, but don't project that onto me. Yeah, exactly. And also I think it says a lot about someone when they could be happy for other people's success. Yeah. So I'm always really fascinated when you don't see unselfish joy. Yeah. So that beautiful unselfish joy, when someone gives you unselfish joy at your success, you go, you're sorted. Mm. You know, and whether that's a woman who can't have children, who touches another woman's pregnant belly and says, I am so thrilled for you. That's hard. Yeah. That's beautiful unselfish joy. That's a human being who's got their shit sorted, Gary. And I only want to be around those people. You know, they other the people that are outside the arena, they just drag you down. Yeah, I'm going to put that on the chalkboard in the kitchen. I always have stuff on the chalkboard in the kitchen. So normally do I. For my daughter, I have a it's normally for my kitchen. daughter, you know, like she'll say something and then I go scribble it up on the board. You know, there's something on there at the moment. I've just got, got to put a couple of rude words in it, so I'm not going to tell you what it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, with the success, obviously, and we talked about, you know, it's very hard to establish a business, business like that and it's never done. Mm. It is never done, is no. it? It's constantly, like you say, I've got to, you know, you're here, but at some point you're going to be making a phone call or you're dealing with something that you never thought you'd have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Along this journey, particularly with Simon, have, has, have you had some tough times in the business? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You and know, businesses that haven't worked or that, you know, that, has dra- yes. that have dragged you into it and you've felt that stress? Absolutely. And I'm all about intention. Why are we doing this business? And I remember Simon had one particular business and he, I could just see from the start, he, he just latched onto it for what I felt were the wrong reasons. Um, but I understood it because he didn't have a project at the time and it was very easy for me to sit back as the wife that was mm. sort of the dream job on the project and I was pretty fulfilled and he was a bit lost. And so this project came up and I understand that too. When you're in the, the landscape of I've got nothing and something pops up, you, you tend to just jump on it. And he jumped on it with a couple of colleagues and I'm sort of sitting back going, okay, so, you know, what do you want to do here? And he's like, oh, I just want to do like a, you know, like gastro pub and this is this. And I'm like, okay. And I'm trying to be supportive, but I could see that it was sort of an excuse to do anything. And I know that he's not passionate about he he did he's done years and years and years Gary of gastro pub food and that was great and there's such a marker for it but he just he was just over it so i'd see him light up and shine when we'd go travelling or go to europe and sit in a little tiny tiny bistro and he'd have this rabbit pappardelle or something and he the light in his eyes and i said to him but you know i think you were saying you don't want to do parma and chips anymore no no she's right whatever and he, and that was it he'd forged on and mm. i knew oh god the horse has bolted <laughs> <laughs> and so I just presented a few things and I said, look, I just don't know whether, why we're we doing this. And he said, well, we can make money for this. And so I said, aha, that's the issue. So we're not doing this for the right reason. What's the intention here? And, but I sort of, you know, as you do, I knew that I, the horse had bolted. Yeah. So I didn't sort of get, I supported him, but I didn't get involved because I knew it wasn't in alignment with where we were going. And I knew that it wouldn't work, but I thought he's got to work that out on his own. It's like, a, you know, it's like when you watch your little one go off to and you feel like saying, just don't go on the monkey bars, just don't go on the monkey bars. But of course they go on the monkey bars and they break the wrist. You just got to let them do it. So I'd watch him get in the car every day and he had to drive this, it was an hour's drive, this particular venue. 
So even that, after a while, I just watched this man every day going there. It wasn't working. It was going okay, but it wasn't working. And also, and he wasn't passionate about it, Gaz. So A, it wasn't working, and B, it wasn't even a project that he yeah. was getting any creative fulfilment from. So that drive every day I could see, wearing him down day by day by day by day. And so I just gently tried to navigate it and sort of asked him to reflect on it as he went along and said, "What? how are you feeling and what do you think's happening here and why do you think it's happening? And, and look, he came to the conclusion yeah. he needed to come to. And luckily we got out of that one quite well because we sold it, but it wasn't easy. So we didn't sort of lose anything from it. But for all that work, it wasn't yeah. really. We need a bit of pain for some success. You so do. So you need something like that to clarify your thinking, mm-hmm. you know, and set you on a new path. And he got there. Like it doesn't help when anyone says, I told you so. But we sat down and said, what did we learn from that? And what was your intention there? And why didn't that intention work? Well, the intention wasn't pure. And the intention was about, wasn't about creatively serving ourselves or serving other people. So it was never going to fly. Yeah. So it was, it was a hard lesson, but luckily it wasn't a terrible lesson. But he is an evolved man, so he was able to look at it and go, yep, yeah, okay, I need, to, I need to really... And then it's so funny, Gary, because that happened and he was sort of gun-ho in this other place and I could see again he was getting a bit and I said, you've got to let that go. You're doing the same thing. You're doing the same lesson. So he, he'd learnt but he was still, a, you know, he, yep. he wanted a goal. And then as everything happens, I find, we weren't even sort of looking and then this provincial came, left a field and landed on our lap and was more of a, would you guys do this? And we were a bit like, oh, we hadn't even what do you mean? And walked around the building. You know how, how that happens sometimes? You, you're searching, 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 and then the moment you give up and you surrender, bang, something comes in that you weren't expecting and it's magnificent. And then eventually you think, oh, my God, this was it. There you go. This is what we needed. Yeah, and I think too it's, it's very difficult for successful people to accept that everything that they touch can't always be successful. It can't. It's a classic business mistake. You, and what, end, what ends up happening is you put all your energy into the thing that's failing yep. because you're not used to failure. And yep. then it falls over and drags you with it. So yep. I'm just talking from experience. <laughs> that's how it works. You've all got to feel it. You've got to feel it to feel the you energy do. of something that's at the, at the other end of the scale. Mm. Well, I'm a big believer on that note, Gary, that life is opposite. So I was reading this great book, Tribe of Mentors by Tim Ferriss, who created the four-hour working week, bit of a guru, lateral thinker. And he talks a lot about that life's made up of opposites, left, right, up, down, positive, negative go, stop, and if you don't have the negatives to balance out the positives, mm. A, you'll just become a wanker because you don't have the ego being evo- checked and pushed back and challenged. And you know what it's like? You you tend to think that, with Gary, when things are going too well for a while, you suddenly start thinking, oh, it's all going a bit too well mm. here. What's going to happen? And we almost jinx ourselves. I think that's us almost primarily going, yeah, it's not meant to be like this. So I love the negatives because I think that's just life balancing me out. So if I get a troll comment or I get someone on Insta say, you're pathetic, I go, oh, there it is. There's a negative. Thanks. That's a gift because that's going to keep me in check. I never get upset about it or I never think, hang on, why is this happening? I think there it is. That's the negative. I've got all these positives, so I've got to have the negative to balance me out. And I think if you expect it, it's not a shock or it's not anything more than you won't be a balanced, evolved human being with layers if you don't get the negatives. I like it in food terms. You've got to have a little bitter to enjoy the sweet. That's how that's yes. how it works in foodie terms because it's exactly the same. Yeah, and we we're, we're creatures that don't like pain, so we manoeuvre around we avoid it, through life to, avoid. to avoid pain, and of course, then we might not have an interesting life. I love making this series, and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message, because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One Australia, or wherever you listen. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. Can I drag you back into childhood and just mm-hmm. find a little bit about what that looked like? Because you're you're a very clever individual. Oh, I don't know about that. Well, I... you're a musician, you're a singer, you're you're involved in theatre. I'm correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not looking at my notes, but this is what I remember from knowing about you. Um, you have a media career. 
Mm-hmm. Went to uni, I presume. Mm-hmm. So can we rewind into little girl phase and where did it all come from? And oh, a perfectionist. Yeah, I think perfectionist comes from first, not all firstborns are, but I certainly am. I had such a great childhood. It was a beautiful childhood. Very lucky, very privileged upbringing. It was very real as well, but my parents worked really hard to give my brother and I a wonderful life. Life in the country, imagine, you know, little eight-year-old Georgie on a Shetland pony till sunset type thing. Come in and sounds very Enid Blyton. It was kind of really thing. beautiful, Gaz. It was just. What did um, your mum and dad do? So mum was at home till I was seven, and then she worked in domestic violence in Warrnambool. So that was a really great exposure for my brother and I to be to have a mother who, from the get go, was talking about. I think she said sort of helped form me to be a little mini feminist, and she wouldn't give us sordid details, but she gave us enough details to give us an un an understanding of the underbelly of our community, of what was really going on. So I think that's why I'm really passionate about... Because we live in parallel universes, don't we? Totally. So you're riding your Shetland pony, whether you're eight or whether you're... And going on beautiful holidays. And And there's a whole other world that exists. So I'm glad that I was always exposed to that. And mum was always really compassionate. She was amazing at her job. And dad was a wool classer and a very successful wool classer, incredible, um, probably too worked too hard. And I've got a lot of that in me and I'm always aware of that. So he was away a lot, wanting to provide for the family a lot, had two or three teams at once. It was you know, big money and big bucks, but dad was terrible. And he and I laugh about this now. We've got a great relationship. Terrible with money. So we would have this you know, tennis court. I had stables. We'd go up on these extravagant holidays, which is where I think I got my interest in beautiful holidays and dad would order the lobster. Because at the same time, during the week, he'd be living in a shearing hut, lighting a fire, probably a swag on the on the ground and doing it pretty hard and tough. So as an adult now, I understand why he wanted to go to those really extreme hmm. heights on the holidays. But, you know, poor old mum, I think she found that very frustrating going, we can't afford this. So, um, yeah, dad, we nearly lost everything when I was in year eight though because dad just had terrible at managing money. Amazing at working, but he needed someone to help him manage the money. So that was a lot of cause of angst for my parents and a lot of stress and we got I got exposed to a lot of that, which... Now I'm really grateful for. At the time, as a kid, I think you find it a bit hard to deal with. Mum was pretty stressed and Dad was stressed. and But now I'm so grateful because to understand other people's compassion, you have to have experienced that yourself. So I think that's why when people always say, oh, George, you always seem to understand or someone can walk into a room, Gary, and if I know them, I'll just look at the face for a flicker and I can tell you exactly what's wrong with them, why. Not, not exactly what, but I know exactly that they need a hug and a chat I'm very good at that and I think that comes from being exposed to stuff in my childhood. Um, but overall, look, it was pretty amazing. It was riding horses. It was beautiful friendships. I'm still friends with 11 of my girlfriends from grade two. And there's probably, I think, last count, this is really bad, I think it was about 28 kids and we're all on a WhatsApp. We all catch up. They're all like extended aunties to all of our children. Um, so it was just, it was play dates and it was time in the country. It was being on the beach in Warrnambool at 3.35 and seeing your assistant principal there catching a wave. It was a pretty great life. And we didn't want for much, really. Um, so what's the motivator out of a perfect kind of childhood like that? What makes you driven and, you know, chasing something else? I think there's a bit of small town, something to prove. Dad was never really around much, so there may be... You know, he was, he's a great dad, but he's the first to say now that he wasn't around as a father. I wasn't close to dad. I'm really close to dad now because we've really worked on our relationship and I had to I had to sort of emotionally divorce my issues that I had with him in my 20s. I was going for all the wrong guys because he wasn't that nurturing, loving father that would sit down and just hug you. He was the provider. He was see you, buy off, wasn't there to him, watch me sing, wasn't there to watch me ride, wasn't there. And I don't, didn't really process that at the time, but then at it made me choose men, I think, that put me on a pedestal and you're amazing, you're wonderful, you're beautiful because I think subconsciously I I had searched for that during my childhood. So there was something to prove maybe to myself and maybe subconsciously to prove to my father that I was a success. So maybe that was the driver. Um, and then it took, you know, a really awful time in my late 20s in a relationship breakdown and realising I was with terrible choices in men and a really toxic relationship. Oh, hello, we can all relate to that. Um, 
But then it, that was the best thing that ever happened to me because that just forced me to just dig deep and strip layers off and look at my relationship with my father and look at who I was and take responsibility of why I was being attracted to these particular people. And that was awful at the time, awful, but the best thing that's happened in my life because I then was able to look at my dad and just see him with compassion and love and look at him and working with a great therapist and looking at him and going, hang on, he was just trying to be what he thought was a great dad. And he hadn't been taught by his dad how to be. How to be. So we have this beautiful relationship now because I emotionally divorced all of that stuff, accepted him for who he was. He now lives in the little country town near us outside Ballarat. He, you know, does our lawns and comes up and he's so involved in our life. And I, if you had told me that at 30, I would have said, there's no way, no way that'll ever happen. So it's so wonderful the way it all, we have a choice, don't we, when we go through shit, whether we use it and learn the lesson and dig deep and stay down in the arena with the dirt all around on our face and sit there and go, what, what is this? And sit in the uncomfortableness and work on ourselves or we just get up out of there and run out and don't learn and keep making the same mistake. Yeah, absolutely. Is your mum still around? Yeah, she's great. She had um, a really challenging battle with brain cancer about 18 months ago, but champion got through that and we're really, really close and we're very similar so we can butt heads, but I think we've learned to navigate that in our old age <laughs> and learned to put down the hatches and go, okay, okay. But no, she's, mum was so emotionally available for us. She, I can't believe the emotional intelligence she instilled in my brother and I and yeah, I'm so lucky to have had a mother that talked about what was happening in domestic violence, that talked about feelings, that made everything really accessible emotionally, which was such such a gift for us. So, yeah, they're very different parents growing up and I can see why their relationship never worked. They separated um, when I was about sort of 18, 20, but it was almost like a relief. It's like, oh, thank God you two are not okay. trying to work it out. I was just about to ask how you dealt oh, with that. My brother and I were like high-fiving because you'd come home and it would actually be more uncomfortable when they were trying to work it out and they were trying to be nice and lovey And it was just like, oh, my God, this is so uncomfortable. So when they decided, look, this is just not working, I think we were really relieved. And mum has the most beautiful partner, Stuart, who he's basically my second dad and he's we've, they've been together for 20 years and he's part of our life. And our little girl, Molly Rose, it's great, she you know, when they start to connect the dots. So she's looking at me one day, she's saying, so hang on a minute, hang on a minute, <laughs> mum. We're granddad and nanny married? And we're like going, yeah. She goes, oh, gosh. But hang on, where does Pop Stew come in? And she's she's connecting she's all the dots. She's working it all out. And then um, one day that we've got a little, we've got a farm a gate all the way down, so you've got to buzz the intercom. And one day mum buzzed the intercom. She goes, mum, mum, don't say anything. I want to play a trick on nanny. And I'm just thinking, what is she doing here? She buzzed on. She says... Hello, is that Granddad's former wife? <laughs> <laughs> Hang on a minute. How old's Molly Rose? She's not she's that old. Seven. Seven. Oh, okay. She's got so the smarts about she's her. She's got the smarts. <laughs> so I love that she sees, and we all get together. There's never any issue. You know, our Christmases Beautiful. are one in all in. So I love that she has this blended modern family where she just thinks, yeah, of course, Mum and Granddad are still friends, and Pop Stew is now, you know, my pop as well. And I love that she thinks that's hmm. normal. Well, she doesn't have the baggage of. An adult, for example, well, not, kids look at things that's right. differently, right? And, and, I and, how, and look at how you, you know, behave. Well, I hope that you know it's just up to adults not to project that crap onto kids, yeah. isn't it? Correct. That's our job. Yeah, it is our job. You hope. Yeah. Well, you're supposed to project the right things and what you think is right. That's yes. the problem because everybody thinks of a different right. That's right. So there you go. Was there a relationship with food when you were younger, or busy working family? I didn't. I mean, really, mm. you know, I grew up in a very simple food family, other than my grandfather, mm. but. Um, you got a busy working mum, dad's out doing other stuff. Did that force you to be adaptable to cook or did you just eat very simply? When I think about my childhood food, it's not like we were at a family where you look at, you know, the Italians, the Greeks, where you had this incredible yeah. influence. Very basic, lamb and three veg on a Sunday, gravy. Dad always liked his Sunday roast, very traditional. I, you know, and I still to this day, Gary, can't have just, you know, that carved lamb, can't yeah, have it because it just takes me back to those bad days. Memories. Yeah, bad memories. Mum was a really good cook, <laughs> a very basic good cook. Like she'd have lasagnas and spaghetti bolognese and all of those things. But I remember 
distinctly, and we always had, as I said, Dad loved his good restaurants, so that's where we. I was going to say with occasional lobster thrown. Occasional lobster, lobster Sunday Mornay, roast, lobster Mornay, lobster Mornay, Gary, mm. and loved his oysters. And we had great Chinese. You know, a lot of country towns in Australia, we had great Chinese, yep. so we'd have Chinese as a treat. But I think what happened is being firstborn. A lot of my girlfriends and I, we were very. Yeah, we were we were go get them girls. So we started about year eleven. It was like hoking noodles and stir fries, and I was like, "Hello, what's all this stuff?" But Mum, understandably, being a working mum, said, "If you want to eat that stuff, you got to cook it." So she would sort of prepare the stuff for Dad, and and I sort of being stubborn and high achiever thought, "Well, okay, I will cook it then." So I'd just get her to get the recipes, and I still remember my girlfriend and I separately in our families making our own stir fries with the water chestnuts and. And all those sort of things. Um, not all the time, but yeah, just taking the bull by the horns and think, okay, well, I will do it. So that's where I think I started experimenting. I was a terrible cook at uni. Like a uni, I remember, yeah, Gary. I, I read that really food wasn't on the radar until it you was, met Simon. It, it really was just wasn't. like a. I mean, it, I loved it. I, I started to become a good cook in my early 20s, but when I was cooking for someone who didn't appreciate the food. So that was so frustrating. And they wanted the same stuff all the time. So I had this little tiny, you know when you've got a seed in the back of your head that's annoying you and nagging you, but you don't know whether that's because you're being a pain in the ass or whether that is something legitimate. And I'd, you know, I'd go out for dinner with this person and they're always in such a rush and they just wanted to order and sort of get going. And I'd go, what, what's, why, why the rush? Like this, we're in this amazing restaurant. Why don't we just take our time and share? No, always want the same thing, always just want to go. Were you talking about food like that in a restaurant and not being connected to it? Your life is so the opposite now. <laughs> and then I, I had this, and I tend to ask these questions that are not unf- that are fo- not related to food in any way. But I ask, what was the saddest time of your life? Would that would would have been one of your sad times in your life? Oh yeah, yeah, that was an awful time. That was that was coming home from working at Channel Nine and drinking a bottle of wine on my own to try and bl- blunt the pain and try and think, where am I going? What am I doing? Um, yeah, and just questioning who I was, when people make you feel unworthy, when people make you feel... I, I have just had no idea who I was, guess. I was just stripped back to this shell of a human. And it's so funny because I look at that girl now and I don't recognise her at all. But you are you obviously have always been a clever um, person, somebody who was quite intuitive. How did you find yourself in this situation? I don't know. I think... There was unprocessed stuff maybe from the whole dad childhood thing maybe. Um, but people are clever. You know, you can, like anyone, love is blind and you can get caught up in behaviour that you don't even sort of, I, I, I was asking myself that same question. I was sort of at that, this point in a relationship thinking, how did I get here? And I think when you just have a genuinely good understanding of that you think that people will always do the right thing by so you're not I just don't think it's our job as humans to be always be double checking or triple checking or asking or checking phones or seeing if people are doing the wrong thing when you don't behave like that um maybe part of the reason why I was attracted to that was just to fill that void of what I missed having that father figure around all the time that's the only you know, the work I've done on myself is the only thing I can come around to is that there was a need in me to feel special, elevated, put on a pedestal and those choices were helping that maybe. And then once the gloss wore off on that and I realised, oh, my God, I'm not with someone who is has my best interests at heart, it's really painful. But you just have to lie down and be in the arena again and grow and learn and take the step away. What was the rock bottom point? I think the rock bottom point for me was I just remember crying at night, like being in a fetal position and crying and thinking, I just want, I remember out loud saying, I am so unhappy. This is while I was still in the relationship. I just remember out loud thinking, I am just so unhappy. That deep heaving sobbing that you have from Mm. your gut and your heart and why is this happening to me? But what I was also manifesting, which is really interesting and putting out there and wishing for and dreaming is, oh, I just want a, I just want a, an equal. I want someone who just, I want to have a family. I want a devoted dad. I want a loyal, loving, beautiful partner in life that's with me to the end. I was just, I was wishing for all this stuff. And I really feel now that because I was wishing for all that stuff, 
I'm a, you know, I'm very spiritual. I feel like that the universe was going, well, if you want all this stuff, we've got to show you a few things here, sister, because you're not going to get that with this relationship. So you're going to have to go through some pain because if that's what you really want, we'll get you there, but you've got to go through some pain to get that. And that's exactly what happened. Was it a chalk and cheese period in your life though? Like was TV going well for you, your career going well, you're surrounded by people that you loved working with? TV did, was good, yeah. Or was one affecting one... Was the private life affecting your, your oh, no. television career? If I didn't have my TV career, Gary, I wouldn't have got up in the mornings. So thank God I had a job where they really valued me. The Today Show team were amazing. My executive producer, Tom, was incredibly supportive. And when I went to him and said, my relationship's broken down, he was like, how are you doing this job? Do you want some time off? And I said to him, no, the worst thing you can do is give me time off. I need to get up in the morning and I need to have purpose. No, if I didn't have my job and I was traveling the world, I was, be- I was a travel reporter. If I hadn't had that, Gary, I would have been A, worse and B, I probably would have got sucked back into that world and that relationship mm. because I wouldn't have had any sense of self. So where did the bravery come from? Where did the point come from that, because it's all very well being sobbing, but most people can't get out of it, can they? They don't get out of it. I think there's people that stay there for life. And mm-hmm. incredible support network, people not judging me but gently pushing me. So not saying, why is why are you staying in it and why are you doing this? Just go, whatever. Not doing that but gently saying, okay, do, do you feel respected? Do you feel valued? Mm. You know, do you feel blah, blah, blah? And getting me to answer questions about myself. But I still remember my darling brother one night saying, giving me the best advice and he said to me, one night or one day you will look up at the sky and you'll just know what to do. And I also dealt with my therapist um, at that time. And she said, I had a tri- I remember I had a trip coming up and she said, I want you to go away on this trip. It was a work trip. And she said, I want you to get off the actual Australia, even Australian earth as you ascend up on the plane. I want you to disconnect, go away and be you. And by the time you come down and you touch the soil on that aeroplane, you're going to know what to do. And that's sort of what I felt. I almost needed that distance and I needed to just get away from the energy. And then I just reconnected with myself. And then I remember being at this party and I, like, I always wanted to, I didn't ever want to walk away, Gary, and say, I didn't give it everything I had. I wanted to know that I'd tried every single thing and that I was at peace going, I tried everything and I was just against uh, the odds were always against me, but I just wanted to still bat up. And I remember being at this wedding and I looked over and this particular person I was with was behaving in exactly the same way that um, was causing all the issues. And I had that moment. I looked up and it was a clear night and I just looked at these stars and this sense of peace flooded through my whole body and the words that came into every cell in my body said to me, it's time. And I just knew it was something quite magical, a power bigger than me. And I just, I don't know what it was. I'm spiritual, not really necessarily religious. I was raised as a Catholic, but there was some greater, big, powerful energy, purpose, sense moment where I just knew. And then I had the bravery and I had the strength to do what I needed to do. And it was so interesting because I had that, that assuredness too. It was really fascinating to watch the effect that that had on the relationship too there was suddenly more grasping and more sort of, I'll do this, I'll do this, I promise I'll do this and we'll do that, we'll do that and I'll, I'll make it amazing. And I just had this sense of calmness that I just mm. went, no. And that's where for most people the strength really needs to, you know, come that's to the... That's the hardest time. Yeah. When, when you've, you've pulled out and you've emotionally checked out but the person that you've affected in the relationship realises, holy shit, this person's going. That's the hardest time. Mm. And that's where I say to people and women, I'm really passionate about men and women going through these journeys. I say to them, that's the time where you do zero contact Mm. and bring in your support network and push through. And then the golden opportunities you get on the other side, like when I went on my first date with my darling husband, Simon, I just had a whole new perspective about the value system that I wanted and on our first date in a little tiny little tapas Spanish restaurant, Santiago, down in some Albert Park, he said to me, first date, so many guys would have just taken off. He said, so what are your plans now? You know, you, you're doing today's show, whatever, but do you want to do your own show, whatever? And I said, do you know what, Simon? I said, I want to meet my life partner. I want to have a family. 
and I want to settle down. I'm just ready for the real deal. So I said, if you're not into that at all, I said, just don't waste my time because I can't be stuffed. And he just looked at me and he just said, great answer. There you go. And I'm like, you're the man that I need you to be. Must have been before Tinder. (laughs) It was before Tinder. You would have had to go through 50 dates to get to that one. (laughs) I would not laugh. Imagine putting that on my profile. (laughs) See you later. Guys, I'm not getting any swipes. I don't know why. (laughs) All right. What does the future hold? Oh. For, for you, there's a lot to cover for you, television, um, Molly Rose, for for the provincial. Wow. Have you got any ideas? What do you hope for? What I hope for and what I always write down in my diary and my gratitude journal and when I'm just sort of manifesting is a life of good health, a long life of good health, wonderful food, special explorations overseas together as families <laughs> and to keep pushing ourselves creatively with this business. So whenever people, thankfully, which I love to rest on our laurels, so to keep pushing the boundaries, to have this, take this incredible team to heights that we've never known and they've never known. And I think to keep surprising ourselves. And then when we're surprising ourselves, we surprise other people. And that's really, that's fun and that's magnetic and yeah, just to live a really rich, happy life, Gaz. I love it. And what I love most actually is, um, and the reason that I asked you to come in in the first place is your energy. And you're, you talked about good people. I love good people too. We have people that we love on, on our show because they're interesting. And you can see the, the energy that you have uh, infect everything that's around you. And that's a beautiful thing. So we wish you all the best. Thank and you. And uh, I'll be coming out very soon. Although Ballarat is a long way away for a Melbourne city boy like me. Oh, come on. It means it's I gotta an pack hour. A, I've got to pack a picnic, get in the car, you know, Overnight load it bag. up. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's we'll been a joy. We'll see you soon. Talking to Georgie, it makes me think of country cooking. If you check out her Instagram page, it's full of gorgeous pictures of sponge cakes and braises and roast chicken, and it got me thinking about scones. What could be more country than scones? And I've got a great recipe that I've been using for years. In fact, I stole it off a young chef called Tracy Robertson, but it's been mine for 20 years. That makes it mine, doesn't it? It's really easy. 150 mils of cream, 150 mils of milk, one egg whisk together. You can put three cups of flour into a bowl, put a pinch of sugar or a tablespoonful of sugar, a pinch of salt, a lemon, just the zest only, and then pour that egg and cream and milk mixture gently into the middle and then combine it all together into a soft dough. You can add a tiny bit more flour if you want, if it doesn't feel quite right, but it should be nice and soft, really tender. Tip it onto a bench, roll it out nice and thick, punch it out into circles, brush it with each little circle with a bit of milk and pop it in the oven. 200 degrees for about 12 to 15 minutes. They are delicious scones. I said self-raising flour, didn't I? Use self-raising flour. A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Zwolenski. Audio production is Darcy Thompson and special thanks to Imogen Thomas for all the research. Listener.